The word of the Lord from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill, and he dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. And he built a tower in the middle of it, and hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now let me tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall and it will become trampled ground. I will lay it waste and it will not be pruned or hoed. But briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds to rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. And Isaiah 66, 18 through 21. For I know their works and their thoughts. The time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. And I will set a sign among them, and will send survivors from them to the nations, Tarshish, Put, Lud, Meshesh, Rosh, Tubal, and Javan, to the distant coastlands that have neither heard my fame nor seen my glory. And they will declare my glory among the nations. Then they shall bring all your brethren from all the nations as a grain offering to the Lord on horses, in chariots, in litters, on mules, and on camels to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord, just as the sons of Israel bring their grain offerings in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. I will also take some of them for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. The New Testament, the fulfillment, Romans 11, 11 through 24. I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now, if their transgressions be riches for the world, and their failure be riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? But I am speaking to you who are Gentiles. Inasmuch then, as I am an apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry, if somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. But if their rejection be reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? And if the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also. And if the root be holy, the branches are too. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being wild olive, were grafted in among them, and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief. But you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. 
Behold then the kindness and severity of God to those who fell severity, but to you God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more shall these, who are the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? Thus far the written word. Heavenly Father, grant that we shall understand, grant that we shall know what the Holy Spirit has revealed through your Apostle, so that we will understand our standing and the use and function of the church in redemptive history, and that we will glory in you and in your redemption alone, and not in ourselves in any foolish way. Grant, O Lord, that true knowledge shall come as we study your word, because your Spirit shall open our eyes and our hearts to understand. Amen. Please be seated. The Apostle Paul began the book of Romans in what should best be called a very negative mood. He expressed that there is no one who does good, not even one, and we confess that today as we went before the Lord our God, acknowledging our own sinfulness. He said that neither the Jew nor the Gentile has accomplished the righteousness of God, and therefore no one can go before God and expect reward. Rather, Everyone must face the wrath of God because everyone has sinned against his law, whether written on their hearts, in their conscience, or, in the case of the Jews, given in the law code of Moses. The Apostle Paul, however, did not leave us in that spot. He declared that though no man can accomplish the works of the law and achieve the righteousness that God commands, Yet, through the instrument of faith, God grants the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The righteousness of God acceptable in his sight will be credited to your account, so that you will stand before God in the day of judgment and be declared perfect, holy, and thereby receive the gift of eternal life. He then went on to explain how this could be. Because... The second Adam fulfilled the covenant of works requirements. He fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law. And we being in him are then made partakers of his righteousness. So now you live. Now you are lifted up. And there is nothing that will separate you from the love of God in Jesus Christ. The gospel promise is absolute. It is sure and true. God's word cannot fail, and you will never again have to approach God in fear. And so, he says, this should lead you then to gratitude. This should make you to love the law of God even more, because it no longer threatens you. It no longer causes you despair. But rather, it to you is a sure sign of how you may please God now that you are his children. And then he sings of the great assurance that we have, neither height nor depth nor powers nor the things of this world nor of the age to come shall separate you from the love of God. 
Then we enter the section in which we find ourselves now, chapters 9 through 11. The section that many have dismissed as not applicable to the Christian church. A section that many pass over for fear because it seems so complex and so frightening because it speaks of God's absolute majesty and sovereign rule. But to us, to whom the Spirit of Christ has been given, these are words from our Father. And therefore we will hear them. We will study them. We will understand its teaching and we will rejoice in the God who has given to us these great words of comfort. What then do these words declare to us? Very simply declares to us that God in his sovereign will, according to his good pleasure, did in fact deliver for himself a people. It has made them to be his own precious possession. And these people are not those who have earned it. It is not by their will, but it is by God's grace. But the question had been raised. How can we trust this God? And how is it that God can now save people by grace alone when the whole law and the covenant of Moses didn't save anyone? Didn't God's words actually show that it had no power by not delivering an Israelite? Didn't God's word actually fail when God gave the law to Moses and no one was saved by it? The Apostle Paul says, you have misunderstood the purpose of the law, and you have misunderstood Israel as well. To Israel were given the promises. To them were the fathers. To them were all the things that God meant to give. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Neither are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. So Paul lays out this principle that he says is going to guide the next few chapters. Not all Israel is Israel. Not everyone who has identity with the visible covenant community is also member of the true church of Jesus Christ, the congregation which assembles in the heavenly Jerusalem. Look at Isaiah the prophet. At the beginning of his book, the prophet Isaiah has been reading words of denunciation and condemnation against the Israelites for their sins. And here in chapter 5, he uses the illustration of a vineyard, and he says, let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill, and he dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it in the choice, with it the choicest vine. And he built a tower in the middle of it and hewed a wine vat in it, and he expected it to produce good grapes. But it produced only worthless ones. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now let me tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall, and it will become trampled ground and I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. The curse from creation and the fall, briars and thorns will destroy and make this a cursed land, a cursed vineyard. 
and I will also charge the clouds to rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. Thy, the prophet says, this is you, Israel. This song, this story is about you, how you are the choice one of God, and yet you have produced nothing but bloodshed and distress. Jesus takes this parable, and he says, when a man leases his vineyard to tenants, and they never give to him the rent that he is due, and he says his servants, and they beat them and kill them, and he finally sends his son, saying, they will certainly listen to my son when I have given them all these things. And the response of the tenants is, if we kill the son, he has no heir, and therefore we get everything. Jesus says, this parable is about you, and the destruction will come. And he even asks them, what do you think the vineyard owner will do? And they say, well, he will assemble his armies. They will come and kill all the current tenants and give this land to others who are more worthy. And Jesus declares, you have condemned yourselves rightly because you did not produce the fruit that the Lord God expected of you. Now, by the time we get to the end of Isaiah, as he read this morning, you have wonderful news. A remarkable change has taken place. But between Isaiah 5 and Isaiah 66, what happens? Well, you have chapter 40 of the Declaration. Make all the high places plain. Lower them. Raise up all the ditches and the valleys so that it will be smooth for the coming of my messenger. In the New Testament, we are told that is John the Baptist. And then you have the four servant songs and that go on all the way through chapter 53, especially the wonderful song of the suffering servant, which declares to us that for our sins he was bruised, that though he was righteous, he died for our iniquities. Between the destruction of the vineyard and the coming of the good news of chapter 66, you have Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. From the time that Israel is destroyed until the great glory that we see, it is the age and the time where the church is doing its work. And then here are the words. For I know their works and their thoughts. The time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. And I will set a sign among them, and I will send survivors from them to the nations. Now, the prophecy is speaking of a time in which God is going to bring in and bring back all the sons and daughters of Israel. But notice what he says. He says, I will set a sign among them, and then I will send out their survivors. So even though it's looking for a time of gathering, it still speaks of a time of dispersal. The sign, of course, is the coming of Jesus Christ and his crucifixion and resurrection. And then after this time, the Jews are sent out throughout the world and their survivors are the remnant that we have been reading about in chapters 9, 10, and 11 of Romans. The righteous remnant that God said he would preserve and elect from his covenant community. 
and they will be a witness to the nations. They shall go out to Tarshish, Put, Lud, Meshech, Rosh, Tubal, Javan, to the distant coastlands that have neither heard my fame nor seen my glory. And they will declare my glory among the nations. The dispersal of the Israelite nation is an order that the gospel shall go forth to the ends of the earth. Then they shall bring all your brethren from all the nations as a grain offering to the Lord on horses, in chariots, in litters, on mules, and on camels to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord. The going out of the Israelites, the remnant who preach the gospel, the apostles, of course, being the primary of these, shall then cause there to be a coming together of Jew and Gentile, where the Gentiles will be in part responsible for the bringing in of the Jews, and together they all gather in my holy mountain Jerusalem, which is not the physical Jerusalem, as we see as the description goes on later. Just as the sons of Israel bring their grain offerings in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord, I will also take some of them for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. In the fulfillment of this great imagery, the Lord God says that I will bring in Jew and Gentile together, and together they shall be priests and Levites, which, remember, used to be restricted to a single tribe of Israel. So 11 of the 12 tribes could not be priests, but God is saying now, I will even bring from the Gentiles to be priests in my holy mountain. Well, the law of God is very clear. In physical Jerusalem, or you have the physical temple, only those who are descended of the tribe of Levi may serve as Levites. And only the particular line of Aaron shall serve as priests. But now we are being told, this group that is being gathered in, shall all have this privilege of service before the throne of God. Therefore, this cannot be physical Israel, physical Jerusalem, and the physical temple, but rather the heavenly Jerusalem and the true temple of God in heaven above, Jesus Christ. Now, in light of this imagery, the casting out of the Israelites the remnant going forth and declaring the glories of the sign that they have seen Jesus Christ, and this bringing in the Gentiles, which along with it carries in the Jews. Now let's turn to Romans 11. I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, and here fall be fall away completely, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles. And the salvation coming to the Gentiles is to make them, the Jews, jealous. Now, if their transgression be riches for the world, and their failure be riches for the Gentiles, remember, they've gone forth and declaring the sign to the world, how much more will their fulfillment be? But I am speaking to you who are Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry if somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. For if their rejection be the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? The Apostle Paul is now telling the church in Rome to consider this. You who are not Jews, who have now received this wonderful benefit of hearing of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the redemption which is yours, do not look down on the Jews 
and think that you are better than them as you have received this. But understand, it was God's plan. We've already seen that in chapters 9 and 10. That it was God's plan always that he would only preserve a remnant. That not all Israel was Israel, but only those who are his elect. But their going forth into the world was a deliberate choice of God, so that you, who are in the far-off lands who had never heard of the wonders of God, would now hear and believe. But God has also willed that as more and more of the Gentiles receive this promise which belonged to the Jews, that the Jews would be made jealous through this and would also then come back and receive the promise. Why did God choose this mechanism, this economy? I don't know. It's not worth debating. The fact is, this is what is revealed to us. This is how God is doing it. The select remnant of the Israelites from all Israel have become witnesses of that wonderful, glorious resurrection of Jesus Christ to all the nations. And as all the nations are hearing this and are being drawn together to the heavenly Jerusalem, along with them, they are bringing the Jews who are being made jealous that their inheritance has gone out to others. And the Apostle Paul says, the more I preach to your Gentiles, and the more of you who are saved, I have the hope that it will make my brothers and sisters in the flesh jealous that that which was promised to them is being given to others so that they too shall come and claim this promise. And we can see from what Isaiah has told us, God is going to use the coming in of the Gentiles to the heavenly Jerusalem to bring along with them the Jews also in, on horses, chariots, litters, mules, and camels so that all may come and worship at the mountain of the Lord. And when all of the people come together, what does he say will be the result? If the rejection of the Jews, verse 15, if the rejection of the Jews resulted in reconciliation of the world and the hearing of the gospel and the regeneration by the work of the Spirit, what will be their acceptance, the return of all those who belong to God, the elect remnant? What will be the result but the resurrection, life from the dead? So you see how it's all tied together. The glorious end of the age will not come until all the elect of God have been brought in. And so by the propagation of the gospel, the preaching of the good news of Jesus Christ, we are seeing God's name glorified, sinners saved, and ultimately awaiting the coming of the kingdom of God, our resurrection from the dead, our restoration to the fullness of creation glory. Then he goes on to remind us of our status and position. And if the first piece of dough be holy, the lump is also. And if the root be holy, the branches are too. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you being a wild olive were grafted in among them, and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, Branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief. But you stand by your faith. 
Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Behold then the kindness and severity of God. To those who fall, severity. But to you, God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And if they also... And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more shall these who are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? Here the Apostle Paul asks all of us to consider our position. How many of you are confident that you are members of the Church of Jesus Christ and forever will be simply because your parents were? Simply because you grew up in the church and were baptized? Simply because you said the sinner's prayer or you attend regularly? How many of you base your confidence on your descent, on your works, how many of you base your confidence on something other than faith alone? The Apostle Paul is trying to remind us all, not all Israel is Israel, and not all the church is the true church. There are many who are hypocrites. There are many who are here simply out of habit or custom, but do not have a true and living faith. To them are the promises. The covenant sign has been placed on them, and yet they will receive none of the blessing because they did not believe, because they relied on their own works and their self-righteousness and did not wholly and completely cast themselves upon the work and the merit of Jesus Christ. If God would take the Israelite nation who were distinct and marked out in the world, and given the law and the sign of circumcision, and would cast the majority of them out, by what foolish notion should any Gentile believe that they will get to remain? If you believe you are superior to the Jews, and your confidence is that God will never love the Jews, therefore he has to have someone, so he has no choice but to love me. Well, Paul says, be very, very concerned and in fear. If he cut off the natural branches from the root of Abraham, he will certainly cut off the wild branches that were grafted in. They were cut off for their unbelief. You will only remain by faith. And so the warning goes out to us to never become arrogant. The warning goes out to us never to look down on the Jews as a lesser race. That's what Paul is arguing for here. Now, this doesn't mean, therefore, exalt the Jews as a greater race. No, they are a race of human beings like every other race. Chinese, Nigerian, Igbo, Indonesian, it doesn't matter. All are descendants of Adam and in sin or regenerated in Jesus Christ. But the danger that existed was, since the church comes in and fulfills and receives all the promises of Israel, that there could be an arrogance that comes in and says, it must be because the Jews as a whole are lesser, inferior, and therefore undeserving. And Paul says, I warn you Gentiles, do not think that way. They were the ones that God chose. They are the ones 
through me, the Apostle Paul, in your case, bringing the gospel. And as you are being saved, no one understand, God is using that also to save Jews as well. So, the church then is going to be comprised of Jews and Gentiles. The coming in of the Gentiles from all the nations is going to bring the Jews with them. And this is something that's important to see. Now, some of you who are hearing this sermon might think, oh, this sounds very dispensational. I have said nothing that's dispensational. You see, for them, you would have the Gentile church, which the Jews really don't have a part of, and then the Gentile church gets removed through the rapture, and then a Jewish church comes in. The Bible doesn't say that, and I haven't said that. What the Bible declares is as the Gentiles are being called in, along with them, the Jews are gathered in. And together, it becomes the fullness. Together, it is the completion and fulfillment so that not all national, physical Israel is saved, but that the elect remnant are brought in. And when they are filled to the wholeness of their number as God elected them, then we get the end of time, the resurrection from the dead. And so it should be a joy to us to see Jew and Gentile being saved. We should never discriminate against any group. And in the church, there had better never be the white church, the black church, the Chinese church, the Armenian church, or anything else. It is the church of Jesus Christ. And to segregate and separate by any standard, other than geographic location, which is necessary, is absolutely unconscionable. The Apostle Paul would reject an ethnic church as being a true church. Because it is necessary that the church reflect all of what God is doing. Life from the dead, the resurrection life in heaven above, is already begun here. And we're not going to worship God segregated in heaven. And to do so here would be anathema to Paul. So he says, consider, you're being brought in is a wonderful result of the destruction of Israel. But, since God loved Israel, do you not understand how much more blessing you will receive when the fullness of Israel has in fact been drawn in? When the completion of God's will in drawing in the elect has occurred? You think the comfort of having your sins relieved is wonderful. You're right. But you ain't seen nothing yet the joy and the glory that will come when this mortal life shall finally be set aside and you shall be raised from the dead forevermore without sin. That is the wonderful glory. That is the life from the dead when all are brought in. So then we've seen in the book of Romans how this is going. We have gone from the hopelessness of man in his fallen estate in Adam to this glorious conclusion that is awaiting us. And notice, it is not an individual type of salvation. Yes, you as an individual are saved. From a family, only one might be saved. From the nation of Israel, only a remnant. And from among the Gentiles, just a representative sample. But you are grafted into and made into a new people a tree where the patriarchs are the roots and the stump, and we are grafted into that as a people of God, unified, whole, and one. And it is only as this one unified body of Christ that we shall receive the blessing. Until each and every last elect one is called in, 
the final blessing doesn't come. So to the Apostle Paul, the preaching of the gospel is that God will be glorified so that his glory will be shown in all the earth, so that his will will be fulfilled. We receive the benefits in a way secondarily. The real purpose is God's glory. We receive the benefit because God is so generous. But as we are called in, others are dragged in with it. He uses the word jealousy, but ultimately we know it is by the grace of God working in the hearts of fallen men. So how should we see ourselves and understand ourselves? We should see ourselves as immensely blessed that God would take his precious beloved and destroy her in order that the remnant would go forth and preach the gospel for us to be saved. We must understand that there is nothing special about us. We are not better than anyone else. And yet, we have been made children of the living God and heirs of all the promises. We must remember the warning that is given, that it is by faith alone we will be preserved and not by works, and therefore to set aside all foolish notions and arrogance that would make us to believe in our own self-worth and self-righteousness. Let us instead look and understand, no matter how hard we work, we are not going to bring about the glory of God. When God's purpose is fulfilled and the completion of the Jews has been brought in into the church, then we shall receive the resurrection life. This is our joy and hope then. The day is coming when God shall bring together all his elect as one body, the church, and we shall live forevermore. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you this day for this wondrous hope which is ours in Jesus Christ. And we ask, Lord, that we shall understand that we have been saved by grace through faith and not of our works, that it is not by race, it is not by family ties, but it is by your mercy alone we have been saved. Let us therefore understand, O Lord, that we therefore are now called to be part of a new people, a new people in which there is to be no more discrimination, there is to be no pride or arrogance against others. Rather, we are one body, the church, and each and every member, whether black or white, whether or not we are slave or free, male or female, we are all one in Jesus Christ. Lord God, may we understand this and may there be a tangible, visible unity that shows in the world so that people will truly see that in Jesus Christ there is a transformation which takes place where sinners are made righteous because the Spirit of God works in us, transforming us and causing us to repent of our sins and delighting in obeying the law of God. We thank you, O Lord, for the warning that we should never be arrogant, but rather always by faith be preserved to the last day. May your spirit continue to work this living and saving faith in us. Amen.